It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this edition, we're looking at how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed global politics, heightening tensions between the US and China and weakening international cooperation. The political impact of the pandemic is the subject of a new book, Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order. Its co-authors are quintessential Washington insiders. Colin Carr was an academic. He's now Under Secretary for Defense in the Biden administration. Thomas Wright is Director of the Center on the US and Europe at the Brookings Institution, and he's my guest today. So, how has the pandemic changed the world order? It's now almost two years since COVID-19 first surfaced in China towards the end of 2019. The emergence of a global pandemic made the head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, a global figure. In his early public appearances, Dr. Tedros was careful to praise China's cooperation. The Chinese government is to be congratulated for the extraordinary measures it has taken to contain the outbreak, despite the severe social and economic impact those measures are having on the Chinese people. By contrast, President Donald Trump was swift to pin the blame for the pandemic on Beijing, insisting on calling COVID-19 the China virus. We must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China. In the earliest days of the virus, China locked down travel domestically while allowing flights to leave China and infect the world. Under Trump's leadership, the U.S. even announced plans to withdraw from the World Health Organization. Those plans were swiftly scrapped when President Biden came to power, and that was very much in tune with Biden's general theme of American re-engagement with the world. America's back. I speak today as President of the United States at the very start of my administration, and I'm sending a clear message to the world. America is back. The transatlantic alliance is back. But a more engaged U.S. president will not be enough to reverse the damage to the international political system caused by COVID-19. When I got Tom Wright on the line from the US, he explained to me why he thinks the pandemic will be seen as a historic turning point. I think when historians look back on it, the year of 2020 will be sort of crucially important in the same way maybe that 1947 was crucially important in US-Soviet relations for a couple of reasons. Like number one, I think China's actions at the beginning of the pandemic and the way then in which it became more assertive after it suppressed the virus um, at home, at least at that point, I think really pulled the veil back on Xi Jinping's China and revealed its intentions and character in terms of its foreign policy. And then on the US side, I think it was actually the moment where Trump switched 
from being sort of in between the two camps of those who wanted to contain China and those who basically wanted to limit the rivalry to trade and economics, that when he shut down the U.S. economy on March 11th, he really, I think, blamed China as a result and gave a carte blanche to those who were advocating for more containment measures. And some of those officials told us that they accomplished more in the subsequent sort of nine or 10 months in terms of putting new measures in place on China than they had in the previous three years. So I think it was a pivotal moment in US-China relations. So in a sense, this was an opportunity, uh, without sounding too cynical about it, for the hawkish elements in Washington, who were very concerned about the way China was going, to push measures through. What particular things, you said they accomplished more in, in a few months than they had in three years. What are you thinking of? Well, in terms of an opportunity, I think in a way that's a little unfair to them because it sort of indicates they were using this for a different reason than what it actually was. I mean, I think the way in which many in the White House at the time looked at it was as a China problem, right? They saw it as an example of sort of the type of threats and dangers that come from the CCP regime. You know, it demonstrates the effects of China taking over or having more influence in the World Health Organization, the lack of cooperation with the international community. And having talked to many of them, I think that that belief was sincere. But to answer your question, I mean, I think we saw throughout the course of the, of the year, obviously on, on the business side, on the technological side, on the sanction side, you know, in the response to what happened in Hong Kong, and then laid on in the administration on Taiwan, a lot of different measures that previously, you know, had not been put into place. Now, with COVID-19, the World Health Organization is suddenly at the center of international geopolitics. And I think the story that people such as me took away from the very early days was that the WHO was kind of rolled over by China, that it was too cautious in its dealings with China and therefore perhaps a bit slow in getting the word out on what was actually happening. But the story you tell is a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think from the beginning, you know, there were two different views about how to handle China. And the WHO had one very distinctive one. But the US view was that you had to sort of hold China to account or if not criticize it, accurately describe what it was doing or not doing in order to put pressure on. And what they said was that, you know, in 2002, 2003, that was what the then Director General of the WHO, Gro Brundtland, uh, Norwegian, what she did when China wasn't cooperating early on in SARS. And then China did sort of change its tune. So they said, look, we need to respond as we did in 0203. Um, the WHO's view, I think, was very different. Its conclusion was that this was a different type of Chinese regime, you know, more dictatorial, perhaps less responsive to public pressure. Tedros, I think, the director general very much believed this, you know, that they would privately push China to cooperate. And in exchange for that, they would publicly praise them. So that's what they did. And the effect of it was, of course, that they were praising China for an exemplary response at a time when China was concealing vital information and withholding cooperation from the international community. It's also sort of interesting that we say this in the book that Tedros had the same view of Trump. And when Trump pulled out of the WHO, Tedros at one point went up to the US ambassador to Geneva and 
offered to praise Trump and criticize the media for being terribly unfair to him and that he did a tremendous job in dealing with COVID, if that would help. You know, so he was sort of an equal opportunity praiser, I guess, and flatterer when he thought it was required. Yeah. So just briefly, I mean, it sounds as if Tedros, from his point of view, the head of the WHO, was dealing with two kind of slightly out of control, very vain, but very powerful leaders in Xi Jinping and Trump and trying to sort of manage their egos. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this is sort of a nightmare scenario for the WHO. You know, they have a worst pandemic in a century at a time of nationalism and rivalry and stuck between these different sort of giants who do, you know, the WHO, like the UN, is a function of its member states, right? It doesn't really have a lot of independent authority. And so from their point of view, you know, they were trying to navigate that. I think the criticism is that they did let China off the hook and that even something like releasing the sequencing of the virus in mid-January-ish which was widely praised, that was something Beijing forbid. And actually, it was a Chinese scientist acting with an Australian-based scientist that defied that order. So there were real lack of transparency and secrecy issues coming out of Beijing. And the other point, Gideon, that's just interesting to me, I think, is that reforms have been put in place in China over 17 years since SARS. And this was not meant to happen this way. And those reforms largely melted away in December 2019. And so I think a big takeaway is that the West cooperated with China and global public health, but it didn't yield the intended results. So, you know, what do we do next time that might be a bit different? Yeah. And I mean, the WHO then becomes the center of an international system that is just not working well to create cooperation. And so looking at the broad international system outside the US-China relationship per se, I think you're right, don't you, that this was the final blow to the old international order. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that the hope that you could have the major powers cooperating in unison on a shared challenge, or that Western powers sort of automatically dominated or shaped these institutions, that era is basically over. And we think of these shared challenges as things that bring us together. But actually, increasingly, they're the flashpoints in a geopolitical rivalry. And I guess this is the overall argument to the book, is that the geopolitical rivalry shaped the pandemic response and the pandemic shaped the geopolitical rivalry. So there was sort of a negative synergy between both of them. And as we go forward, you hear a lot of people arguing we should reform the WHO and give it powers like the IAEA in terms of intrusive inspections or monitoring putting obligations on states, that is not going to happen because the major powers have an interest in not agreeing to that. And so we can certainly try for reform. We should and fully engage in the WHO, but we also need a backup plan that if that doesn't work, you know, what do we do? And so I think that's what we try to address at the end of the book. So what would that backup plan look like? We propose what we call a global alliance on pandemic preparedness, which would operate in parallel to the WHO. So the U.S. would remain a full member, engage fully and try to shape the WHO with its allies and partners in a positive direction. But it would also set up a group of like-minded countries that would agree to do more and go further, provide more funding for global public goods like global health, do more maybe on vaccines, diagnostics, you know, in the developing world, 
and also commit to higher levels of transparency and a more rapid response and coordinated measures in the wake of another pandemic. So if another pandemic happened, if the WHO was gridlocked, this group would move further, faster, um, maybe set a higher standard, and maybe also ultimately put pressure on other countries that were not meeting that standard. Um, So this would be something that everyone could select into. I think the assumption is that a country like Xi's China would not select into it because the commitment would be too high. But, you know, it will be sort of reinforcing of the WHO and not undermining it. Another thing that's interesting in the book is the extent to which the lab leak theory, the theory that this came out of a lab in Wuhan rather than being sort of naturally occurring in a market, was something that was being discussed at a very high level, even in the WHO very early on. Just give us a sense of what was going on and also where you think we are now with the lab leak theory. Where we came down is there's just no way to know based on the information we have. And therefore, as a matter of public policy, we ought to proceed as if both theories are true, you know, as if it was a lab leak and as if it came from a wet market in terms of the type of responses we would want to put in to be worried about where future pandemics might arise from. But I think just on your two other sort of aspects of the question. Yes, I mean, this was something the Trump administration really pushed early on. They really believed it. I think there was some reason for them to be skeptical of the official story for sure. But I think they also, and particularly Mike Pompeo, I think jumped ahead too much in the conclusions and maybe sort of undermined the case. So I think that played out internationally in the you know, administration made it such a priority that it, it occasionally prevented other forms of cooperation between the allies. On the WHO, I mean, we do have one bit in the book that I think is new on this, where we show that in January 2021, when the WHO investigative team was in China, and they concluded at their interim press conference and then final report that the lab leak was extremely unlikely and didn't merit further investigation In Geneva, they did not agree with that. I think the specific line was, you know, they sort of fell out of their chairs when they saw the press conference. Tedros spoke to the team and said they had no basis for making that conclusion because they just hadn't seen the data and that he didn't expect it to be in the final report. It was then in the final report. He was, I think, very frustrated by that. And that's what caused him to go public and say that it still merited further investigation. So I think that's sort of an interesting window into these tensions inside the WHO. And of course, there were Chinese participants on the investigative team, and the assumption is that this was sort of a compromise between the members of the team. But it just, I think, demonstrates the particular sort of difficulty the WHO has on pursuing the origins investigation. And looking at again at how and who was handling all of this internationally, we seem to have ended up in the Biden administration in a place where Biden is is looking much less to the G20, as was looked to in the financial crisis of 2008, and more to the smaller group of democratic nations, the, the G7. But Trump wanted to do that, didn't he? And it was kind of blown up by Angela Merkel refusing to go to the G7 summit. Yeah, we actually start out the book with that story just because it's a really interesting story about the collapse of the G7. But Trump obviously was not a big multilateralist, did not really seek to work with others. But I think he did see a benefit in having a G7 summit 
in the United States in June of 2020 because it would show that he was in charge. He was styling himself as a dealmaker internationally in advance of the election. And it was a good opportunity for him to show that things were beginning to return to normal. All of the G7 had basically committed to going. Abe, Johnson, Macron had all sort of committed to the White House that they would go. Merkel had sort of reservations. He was much more cautious than they were about COVID protocols. But ultimately, she also did not want to give the president a photo op in advance of the election. And and I thought really interestingly, she believed we were told that she brought out the worst in Trump. And if she was in the room, things would just go worse than if she wasn't there. So it was totally counterproductive. She was like a red rag to his bull. So she called him and said she wasn't going to go. He was incredibly upset at that and shouted at her on a phone call and hung up. And then that sort of indirectly led to the pullout from the WHO. The next day, he sort of escalated his rhetoric on WHO withdrawal, and the G7 never met. And so you had this bizarre situation, really, where the G7, G20, not only didn't really meet in 2020, but the leaders were hardly on speaking terms. For us, you know, the reason we wrote the book is it's a really interesting example of a global crisis when literally no one is home on the international leadership side. The Biden part of it is also interesting. I mean, they took a conscious decision early on to prioritize the G7 over the G20. They believed that like-minded democracies, you know, were more likely to be effective than a wider group. That, as you'll remember, was exactly the opposite conclusion that Barack Obama had in 2009 when he sort of rejected the G7 in favor of the G20. So there's an interesting contrast there between the two. Yes, and the G7 summit was if you like, Biden's America is back moment. I remember watching it. It happened in the UK. And he seemed to say that sort of every second sentence. But now uh, we're, you know, a couple of months on and we've just seen the fall of Kabul. Uh, happened uh, a few days before we recorded this conversation, which seems rather to undermine the America is back theme. Now, obviously, too late for you to include in the book and not precisely related at all to the COVID pandemic. But how do you think this next huge shock to the international system is going to play into some of the themes that you're writing about in your book. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're recording this when this is still very fresh and the scenes have just been unfolding over the last few days. And I think it's obviously very sort of saddening and upsetting and, and dramatic and will undoubtedly have a big impact. Just make sort of two points. I think one, While it is very shocking how it's sort of unfolding, I think it was also highly predictable that the U.S. was going to pull out of Afghanistan. You know, the last president and this president and Biden, of course, believed this during the Obama administration that the U.S. should leave. You know, I think there are many reasons for it, most of them to do with a lack of confidence in the operation in Afghanistan and the partners and whether or not it will lead anywhere successful or it's just a permanent sort of presence that would require research to keep some version of the status quo. But the other element, I think, is a desire, and he mentioned this in his speech the other day, to focus on what he calls sort of the threats and challenges of the future. And I think that is Asia, you know, the Indo-Pacific, China-focused. So I think it does sort of play into, you know, whatever COVID is, it is sort of the end of the post-9-11 moment. We are in a different world now to to what we have been in in the last 20 years. And 
the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I guess, is another step on the way toward that, for better or for worse, depending on one's point of view. And the other point is just on the Allies' side. I mean, it seems to me Europe and the United States still has to have a really honest strategic conversation on where things are headed and, and how they need to transform the alliance and move beyond some of the old debates to deal with this new unfolding strategic reality. And, you know, obviously, I think a lot more could have been done on both sides to prepare for this moment, even if one didn't think it was necessarily going to unfold so quickly. That was Thomas Wright, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rachman Review in all the usual podcast apps, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.